Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Alan Ogle, my former boss, my mentor, and a good friend. The topic of this podcast is a form of resilience or form of grit known as heroism. And we will start right away with the story from the book Natural Born Heroes by Christopher McDougall. The story is about the kindergarten teacher, Narina Benzel. And allow me, please, to read the scenario directly from the book. It's a little bit long, so just hang in there with me. Here it goes. The person who first made me realize heroism was a skill, not a virtue, was a middle-aged woman with big round glasses who ran a small elementary school in Pennsylvania countryside. On February 2nd, 2001, Narina Benzel was in her office when a man with a machete went after her kindergartners. How does a 42-year-old grade school principal who's never been in a fight take on a frenzied army vet and keep battling him, relentlessly, with her bare hands at only 5'3", as he's slashing at her with a blade that can cut through a tree branch? It's remarkable that she had the tenacity to confront him, but the real mystery is how she persisted when even very quickly she must have realized she was doomed to lose. Because the ugly truth about heroism is the tests don't start when you're ready or stop when you're tired. You don't get timeouts, warm-ups, or bathroom breaks. You may have a headache or be wearing the wrong pants or find yourself the way Narina did in a skirt and low heels in school hallway becoming slick with your own blood. Michael Stankowitz was a social studies teacher at a Baltimore high school who began simmering with rage and paranoia after his third wife left him. His violent threats got him fired, hospitalized, and eventually jailed. After he was released, he picked up a machete and drove to the school his stepchildren once attended in sleepy rural York County, Pennsylvania. Just before lunch, Narina Benzel happened to glance out her window and see someone slip through the front door behind a mother with two children. She went to find out who he was and discovered a stranger peering into the kindergarten. Excuse me, sir, Narina said. Is there something I can help you find? Stankowitz wheeled, yanking the machete out of his left pant leg. He slashed at Narina's throat, missing by a hair and slicing of the plastic ID tagged hanging around her neck. A sad and strangely articulate thought ran through her mind. There is no one in my environment who can help. She was alone in this. Whatever she did in the next few seconds would determine who made it out of that school alive. 
Narina could have screamed and fled. She could have curled up in a ball and begged for mercy, or lunged at Stankovic's wrist. Instead, she crossed her arms in front of her face in an X and backed away. Stankowitz kept chopping and slashing, but Narina rolled with the blows, never taking her eyes off him or allowing him to close the gap and get her on the floor. Narina led Stankowitz away from the classrooms and down the hall down the office. She managed to slip inside, bolt the door, and hit the lockdown alarm with her gashed and blood-soaked hand. She was a second too late. Some of the kindergartners were just exiting the classroom as the alarm sounded. Stankowitz went after them. He gashed the teacher's arm, sliced off a girl's ponytail, broke a boy's arm. The children fled toward the office where Narina once again faced Stankowitz. The machete slashed deep into her hands, severing two of her fingers. Narina looked down for, so Stankowitz turned to seek fresh victims, and that's when Narina leaped. She wrapped him in a bear hug, hanging on with the last of her strength as he thrashed and lunged and, clink, he dropped the machete. The school nurse grabbed it and ran out to hide it in the hall. Stankovich staggered to the desk, Narina still clinging to his back. Soon sirens and thundering footsteps were approaching. Narina had lost nearly half of her blood, but was rushed to the hospital in time to save her life. Stankovich surrendered. Narina's genius was finding a strategy that suited her skills. She wasn't a fighter, but she was a hugger. Wrapping her arms around someone was a movement so familiar her sensory system didn't object. Narina managed that hug because she'd had a flash of insight. She couldn't conquer Stankovic's rage, but maybe she could calm it. I put my arms around you, she would tell Michael Stankovic from the witness stand on the day he was sentenced to comfort you. Stankovic stared at her, then he silently mouthed, Thank you, and was let off to serve a 264-year term in prison. What a story. Dr. Alan Ogle, welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast. We kind of started with this right away. Thank you for being here. And what do you take from the story in terms of heroism and how people engage in acts of heroism? Well, thank you for having me on the show. That's just such an incredible story, such incredible courage that this woman showed in this moment of extreme danger, extreme hostility, crisis, and tragedy. I think very few of us would have the sense of what I should do in that situation. Even at that time, there had been prior incidents of like school shootings and so forth. So maybe there'd been some training, but not nearly as much or has been in the past decade about how to respond to somebody becoming violent. And yet she, without prior training in combatives or anything like that, maintained kind of her sense of, okay, how do I make this situation less bad? What do I do? And then she maintained it despite physical injuries, backed away, led him away. What incredible courage she showed. That's just amazing. What an incredible situation she faced of danger and an unexpected one, way out of her element. As she maintained her poise and kind of based, I think, on who she is, she responded to it in a way to protect people. I think who she is or the main factor there is how much she cares about her students, about her staff, and ultimately about the attacker. She led him away and ultimately hugged him to stop the attack and succeeded in that. Really just amazing, and I think inspirational, too. 
You know, it reminds me of a quote from the book about heroism. True heroism, as the ancients understood it, isn't about strength or boldness or even courage. It's about compassion. Empathy, the Greeks believed, was a source of strength, not softness. The more you recognize yourself and others and connected with their distress, the more endurance, the more wisdom, cunning, and determination that you could tap into. You know, you've had many guests on the Blue Grid who've persisted through incredible challenges and situations. And I truly appreciate you giving those folks the opportunity for us to hear their stories. I think it expands our understanding of what people can do and what we perhaps can do if ever called upon. It's fortunately the case that most of us don't have to face the situations as extreme as the school principal did. I think we have other opportunities that come up, maybe in deployment situations. I can think of multiple people from deployments that did amazing things in really horrible situations. Some of whom you've had on Blue Grit, and I think all of us know many people. I'll cite a couple from the mental health professional's perspective that I got to work with in a combat stress deployment in Afghanistan in 2010. The way we did combat stress control then was to distribute small teams, usually a team of two, a mental health provider, and then a technician. And we'd spread these teams across the battle space. At that time, the Air Force Detachment was responsible for 79 locations. So we would place a team of two, say out at one FOB, and then they would circulate through the battle space to take care of like six or eight FOBs around them certainly hazards, lots of hazards, attacks, and lots of difficulties to that. But in terms of heroism, I think of just one example of this mental health nurse, Captain Sandra Malisham, who was assigned out at Fob Shank. And there was an incidence where she had the occasion to take care of a person that she had seen previously. There was a soldier she had provided stress counseling, as occurs multiple times. And then that soldier, while out on patrol with her platoon, was injured. There was an IED implanted in a wall great damage to her side and leg, and then was brought back into Fob Shanked to the forward surgical team that did the immediate stabilization. And this mental health nurse, well, mental health nurse, but nurse, she jumped forward into assisting the team and stabilization of this person that she knew, this former client, to save her life, and then got her transported up to Bagram for definitive care. And then this wonderful professional, Captain Malisham, just pressed on with the rest of her deployment. No aplomb, no fanfare. She gave me a heads up by phone. Hey, this case is coming in. But that was kind of it. And then she continued mission, Charlie Mike, as they say, throughout the rest of her time, continuing to care for soldiers. Just so impressed with people like her, that they were in horrible situations. They had a job to do. And they did it. That sounds like it wasn't her job in terms of her job description. Mental health nurses typically don't provide this kind of care. They do counseling and prescribe medications. Absolutely. And she was very, very busy for that. She was one of the most busy areas providing stress support. And yet she flexed and kind of jumped in to assist, drawing on her professional skills in physical medical care as well. Just as another example, there was a young psychiatrist we had based out of Jalalabad, Captain Randy Skolma. Actually, an extraordinarily professional and kind person who had really the busiest area throughout RC East in terms of the number of locations he had to cover. And he and his technician covered that area wonderfully well throughout the deployment, despite attacks, despite everything. There are a variety of pressures all of us face in deployment. There's the job you're supposed to do, but then you're also placed in a joint environment, which is alien and has different sorts of politics and pressures. Definitely at that time, there were many 
just logistical and operational barriers to getting, whether it's movement to different locations or just a variety of things. And yet he overcame all of those. He and his technician, Sergeant Mason Pointer, to take care of people. And again, with no aplomb, no fanfare, you got to balance the pressures in the location, also pressures at home, and do your best. There was another quote from the book that I think really applies to how people can do so well, do heroic deeds, so to speak, when they're in these situations. And the quote is, the art of the hero wasn't about being brave. It was about being so competent that bravery was not the issue. Those folks in deployment, they faced situations that were way outside their normal experiences when working in garrison. And yet, because they were such dedicated professionals, that they thrived in that situation, they adapted, and then still took care of people. Those folks faced moments for truth of who they are. I think a lot of us can face moments for truth. And it's important that we are able to step up to those when they do arise. Probably listeners who are tuning into this podcast can think of their colleagues or maybe even themselves in many difficult situations where the acts of heroism are going to work and doing their best at what they're assigned to do currently. I like this quote, again, from this book. We're kind of exploring this book today, Natural Born Heroes, and that's from McDougall from the Greeks. He quotes, heroism isn't some mysterious inner virtue. It's a collection of skills that every man and woman can master so that in a pinch, they can become a protector. I like the idea that heroism is not a mysterious inner virtue. It's something that we can develop and it's a collection of skills and we can learn and be dedicated to them. Alan, can you please introduce yourself and tell us about your career? You're retired now and spotting this wonderful beard. What was your career like? And tell us about yourself a little bit. Oh, sure. I'm a psychologist and head of the Air Force in 2000 for my initial residency training. Kind of completed that and then reported into my first duty station three days prior to 9-11 occurring. It's been phenomenally busy since that time. Really 19 years of war of high ops tempo and kind of criticality of every mission. And a great opportunity uh, at kind of a historical time get to help out to do the best I can for others. You know, I had multiple assignments working as a clinician out of a mental health clinic, doing the normal sorts of jobs, providing therapy, assessment therapy to service members and families, running a alcohol abuse prevention treatment programs, and then other things, supporting family advocacy issues and, and so forth. Eventually, I was selected and then completed a postdoctoral fellowship in operational psychology. That's taking a kind of psychological science methods and applying those to enhance military missions, not so much behavioral health care support, but just ways of kind of optimizing performance or promoting safety. And then after the fellowship, I had multiple assignments in kind of non-traditional settings embedded into operational units, including kind of SEER training units, basic military training, and some deployments. And then I finished out my career supporting units that conduct remote combat operations. Each involved various challenges and complexities, but there were great opportunities to make a positive impact. You and I met at BMT, Basic Military Training. Tell us about what was your role. How did you find yourself in the basic military training as an embedded psychologist? Yeah, I was working in a SEER training unit that was also in San Antonio. It was a course for deployers to give them skills to use in the event they were captured by the enemy, how to survive and return with honor. That training can be intense. DOD requires you to have a SEER psychologist on site to support the safety of both students and instructors. 
Now, there are parallels to basic military training. And then I was asked to consult. How do we promote safety and effectiveness of the instructors? The original task was to redesign the psychological screening process for instructors, which we did. But it was clear that we also needed more, more interventions, the training, and then the sustainment piece for MTIs. You, I, and our wonderful mental health sergeants established the military training consult service, four-person team embedded into BMP. We had a lot of fun. But what happened in basic military training for those who may not be as familiar with history in 2012? Yeah, this time frame that we're talking about for BMT, pretty historic, and there's some lessons learned that I hope are not lost. Almost we should become required a reading prior to someone taking command of a training unit. Kind of in the 2009 to 2012 timeframe, there were some very, very significant issues of poor behavior, illegal behavior by MTIs towards recruits. It was discovered really about the summer of 2011 timeframe, a trainee reported to another trainee that she had been sexually assaulted by an MTI. That started some investigations, some more came to light in the fall about additional assaults and incidents, and then multiple investigations ensued. Of course, this was very high profile, showed up in the press all the time. The investigations identified some really severe incidents that were kind of widespread. Not all MTIs, actually most MTIs were very professional and performing, but the situation was very, very difficult in multiple areas. The results of the investigation led to over 30 courts martial of MTIs and over 70 non-judicial punishment actions against MTIs. It was highlighted in national news really almost on a daily basis, I think. Pressure was extremely high to make corrections to prevent any such behaviors from occurring at all, promote safety as well as effective training for recruits. As we looked at kind of the root causes of that, by we, I mean Air Force, and specifically a commander-directed inquiry by Major General Woodward, they found multiple levels of problems. It was Absolutely the case that some frontline MTIs did things that were illegal and resulted in their punishment. But really, as you peel back that onion, there are many layers of problems, lots of layers that should have promoted safety, but were found to be deficient, including one, just insufficient manning. get it round down over time, but they were less and less available. So they, of course, then went more junior in terms of the MTIs that were brought to serve. They found deficiencies in the screening process to make sure that the right people Safe performers would be assigned to MTI duty. There were deficiencies in training, professional development process to take care of MTIs while they were there in BMT, barriers to reporting by MTIs, and lots of just problems in terms of the culture, the, the drift of how things were done. Let's talk a little bit about the insufficient manning in that culture. Do you remember when we just got there, of course, which was a challenging transition time for BMT and for us to be accepted as legitimate agents of cultural change. We've heard some pretty just outrageous stories about insufficient manning. And, you know, I certainly recall some with MTIs just not having enough manning, not having days off. They had to work seven days a week, kind of all day, every day, and they simply didn't have time to go home. It didn't make any sense. So they moved their beds and they slept there because they were so exhausted. You know, these kinds of examples come to mind, but this wasn't one MTI or two MTIs. This was pretty rampant. Is that your recollection as well? Absolutely. Just the demands of the job were incredibly high on MTIs and their families as well. Certainly all of us can surge for a short period of time, but 
it becomes extremely difficult, if not impossible, to maintain good performance. Really just taking that issue from a human factors perspective, it was not uncommon. It was very much the norm, based on what MTIs told us, that they would work kind of 16 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And they would maintain that for really kind of the three or four years of their assignment, again, for six, seven days a week. And then from a human factors perspective, just thinking about the impact of fatigue on performance, really, it doesn't take too many days to build up enough sleep deficit that is comparable to being intoxicated. Right. So organizationally, it's like if the Air Force was assigning MTIs to this job that required them to work the hours that resulted in really significant fatigue problems, it's just comparable to your supervisor saying, hey, I want you to drink three alcoholic drinks before your shift and then go do your best. Yeah. So I think our entry into that environment and the time was a high degree of corrective actions were occurring, being implemented on BMT. It could be looked at like they really had gone years without proper support, manning and other things, levels of leadership that had been removed due to low manning. And then suddenly there were all these corrective actions that had to occur. And we were one of those. We were brought into that situation where folks were very much on guard, very alert. Punishments were occurring for really low-level infractions. And then we were in that mix, too. And we had to build credibility and trust and to be seen as a positive agents for change. Yeah, and then that was uh, definitely a challenge. But I think we did okay. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) I think we became positive agents for change using some strategies that work when you're embedding in a unit. It's very important to successfully join with that unit. You have to take time to understand them, really listen and understand their mission, their challenges, to be present where the mission occurs and not just during and a 0730 to 1630. And BMT is really a 24-7 operation. So I know you and I and our sergeants did a lot of kind of outside of normal duty hours, visitation, presence, consultations, and so forth. That well, I think over time built up our credibility and their trust, their willingness to talk with us, utilize us to help support them and their performance. Now looking back, we can distance ourselves from that environment, from that situation. What's your view on how things have gotten so challenging for BMT and for so many MTIs? I mean, 82 MTIs were removed between 2009 and 2012. That's a lot of people. There's all these people that were just unethical and professional and kind of bad apples. Or what happened from your perspective? That issue of bad apples, I think that's come up many times over the years when there's some sort of terrible occurrence or tragedy or some huge infraction is discovered. We see that now with identification of, oh, that police officer is just a bad apple kind of thing. And okay, so sometimes there are individuals who aren't suited for their job, but the vast majority of the times, it's not an issue of bad apples so much as it is of a bad barrel in which the people are placed in trying to perform. There is a construct called behavioral drift that occurs, and not just in BMT. Behavioral drift is prone to happen in situations where there are individuals who have a high degree of power and control over a vulnerable population. In BMT at MTIs, who had a tremendous amount of power, control, knowledge of military, how things are done, kind of what can happen. And you had recruits who are brand new, young adults or older adolescents who are brand new, very motivated, but just unaware of what the rules are, very motivated to kind of get along, go along, to comply, who are very much at risk of doing things or allowing things to happen that they don't yet know better than allowing to happen. So 
you know, situations of you know, that kind of power and control, the pressures of those situations can lead to people shifting away from what the standards are, what the requirements are, kind of gradually moving into things that are unallowed, that are actually dangerous and hazardous or exploitive. And if it's not checked, if it's not corrected by multiple strategies to correct that, can lead to what's called moral disengagement. Kind of that abuse of power issue is very, very important. You and I and other members of the BMT team had to take multiple steps to prevent that from occurring. Now, abuse of power can happen anywhere. I mentioned I was assigned to a SEER unit as a SEER psychologist. And historical incidents had led to the assignment of SEER psychologist as part of the protective factors to prevent that, to support instructors, screen and support instructors, keep them performing their jobs safely and effectively. But really, there are multiple research studies that talk about kind of the hazards of being in a power and control position with other populations. And I just think back to the Milgram study that looked at kind of the power of authority figures to get people to do things that are harmful to others. For folks that don't recall the Milgram studies conducted in, I think, the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. that was when there was a researcher who was supervising a person who was administering electric shock to another person in another room when they got answers wrong to a test. And the actual study was to see if people would comply with those instructions. What they found is that the vast majority of people would administer increasing amounts of electricity despite screams for the next room and indications that there was damage or death. Most people, normal people from all walks of life, are at risk if protective strategies are not in place. You talk a lot about simple people, good people being placed in difficult situations, and a lot of them becoming victims of those challenging situations, but also in the midst of chaos, unethical, and criminal acts, there were many people who continued to behave professionally and at times heroically, sacrificing their own comfort and maybe even careers to do the right thing. And I can think certainly of MTIs, and I'm glad you mentioned police force. That's probably also true for the kind of this anti-police brutality movement. That's probably also true. And I think of these qualities as professional resilience. And it's important for me to talk about this because the podcast is about resilience or grit, and that's just one aspect of resilience. What do you think distinguishes those who possess this professional resilience to do the right thing when no one is watching from those who succumb to the pressure of the majority? I think that element of compassion is very important, that they were able to connect the pain of others to recognize that and respond to that about, hey, this isn't right. I need to protect people, stop them from being harmed. I think also just the degree of professionalism. There were certainly folks that were assigned MTI duty on a non-voluntary basis, and yet they were superb NCOs, great caring people who were also professional in their skills, NCOs. But then also, hey, now I'm an MTI. I'm going to learn how to do this as best as I can. And it's my duty as an NCO and as an MTI, and then the officers as well, to train the recruits as best as possible within standards and and protect them from harm. I think that is hugely powerful to have both that sense of compassion and then also that professionalism that lead to people to be protective. I recall many MTIs and officers did tremendous things despite significant pressures and concerns, personal and professional, to do their best. Can you think of some of the examples maybe that come to mind? I'm curious if for you, somebody stands out who took a leap of faith and did the right thing, maybe facing personal, professional career implications. 
I can think of several people, but I'll start with the first commander that was assigned for the correction process. That was Colonel Liddick. And this is a maintenance officer who had done superbly well as a leader in aircraft maintenance the rest in her career. And then BMT occurred. And part of the corrective actions were to, hey, let's get a commander in here who can staunchly hold the line and make changes and then enforce standards and make this a safe professional place. So Colonel Lillick was redirected from her career path to, okay, now you're assigned to this job. And this time of change for BMT, I was utterly surprised by the incredible amount of resistance that she faced from others to make the change, whether it's safety standards or enforcement of discipline and multiple processes. I think some of the requirements that those under her may not have known, I think she had very few degrees of freedom from above in what she could do in terms of the corrective steps that needed to occur and the standards of discipline and kind of the discipline consequences that she had to enforce. And I was just impressed with how well she did that while also maintaining a very professional demeanor. She took on the job. This is my assigned duty, and I'm going to lead as well as possible. The vast majority of MTIs and officers were very professional and adapted and did great for her and for the Air Force basic training. And yet there were also officers that served right under her, some, not many, but really who were also quite resistant. And again, despite really some significant provocations to her and that resistance, she really remained kind and professional throughout all the interactions that I observed. Yeah. I can think of multiple MTIs who were there during the time of all the negative behaviors, still doing the right thing, still doing their very best to provide great training. And I can think of some MTIs, many MTIs during the corrective phase. She was a specialist in what she did, a very highly technical career field. It didn't involve leading large numbers of people. Some career fields that get to do that, so they arrive at BMT and they're already familiar with leading large groups of people, but she had not. So there was a steep learning curve. It was a DSD selection, again, not her choice, but assigned from where she was very high performing and comfortable to now be an MTI. And I recall her having to learn command voice and when to be highly assertive and corrective and and kind of how to do that. And it was very stressful and whatnot. I had multiple contacts just through professional training engagements and found her to do superbly well in that assignment, despite all the pressures. Yeah, I like this story because this is really another example of how you grow when you're being planted, right? Where you do the best you can every day coming to work, make the best out of the experiences that you were given, not hoping for something better to come. And we don't think of those moments as acts of heroism, but I think that's what they are. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think all of us face situations day to day that are opportunities for us to do well, to to really show who we are as professionals, as caring professionals, dedicated to helping others and supporting their performance and effectiveness. Tell us about some of the other improvements in addition to the leadership improvements, the improvements that you brought while you were collaborating with AFPC and Laura Barron. We did a lot of work to improve the screening process for those assigned to BMTIs. We looked at what had been previously used and actually conducted a job analysis to identify, hey, what are the really the essential knowledge, skills, and abilities that someone has to have to perform well as an MTI? And then from that, we built the current screening process, really tailored towards identifying, hey, who are the folks that have the skills, the abilities, 
and things like self-control and good judgment and not being abusive. Those were all present. We added some methods to the screening process that I don't think had been used previously really anywhere in the Air Force that I'm aware of. We added the multidimensional 360 assessment, the MD360, which asked their subordinates anonymously, had subordinates, peers, and, and then supervisors provide feedback to rate the essential skills in the candidates to become MTIs. And that became part of the screening process to draw in that sort of data as well, which definitely rounded out the screening process. I think how someone does when no one's watching, when they're working with their subordinates, leading them through tough times, is a very important indicator about how they may behave once they're an MTI. I don't think I fully understood how MD360 worked until, you probably don't even remember this discussion, but you said, imagine that we take 10 of your peers, 10 of the people who work for you and your bosses, all of them rate you unbeknownst to you, what those ratings would be and would you be proud of them? And I remember then it struck me and I realized how powerful these ratings are and what a cool tool that you've developed with Laura Barron that we implemented in that environment. And then I know you retired from the Air Force and you also have been involved in some of the selection process for the Army. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think it may be interesting for some folks. Yeah, I'd be happy to. In retirement, I'm really very much enjoying retirement a much slower pace, but I'm doing what I call day labor psychology work. So, you know, you kind of hang around the clinic, a guy comes by in a truck, and if there's work, you get in. But one of those contract jobs I do, there's an army process that they've implemented to conduct a screening of their officers who are being considered to command battalions or brigades. So rather than just relying on OERs, officer performance reports, they're conducting special screening. It includes a psychological screening process. And also it includes ratings by their peers and subordinates to get information about how well they perform in certain situations. Are they an effective leader? Are they a caring leader, supportive of their troops? Or do they have some toxic behaviors? It's really a very useful process. I'm kind of tickled that the Army has found that the best thing to do is to do something that you and I implemented in 2013. I think their vision is to get the best leaders in those positions of power those positions as a battalion commander, as a brigade commander, especially, to promote performance as well as positive leadership behaviors for those units. So we talked a bit ago about the potential risks of abuse of power when someone is assigned to a position where they have a significant degree of power over vulnerable populations. Very important to get the right people into those jobs, into those situations, to prevent abuse of power or even just poor performance when someone's in that position. You know, we implemented the screening process for MTIs. Now the Army's implemented this process for screening prior to taking a brigade command, battalion command. I wonder too, wouldn't it be interesting if you think of a brigade command, that's probably several thousand people. Okay, well, there's other positions that have even more potential impact. And I think of really political office. There's not a screening process, not a objective developed screening process for identifying, hey, who would do well at that? Who has the essential knowledge, skills, and abilities to succeed and is at low risk for abuse of power in such situations? I haven't heard of this. I kind of did a little research to see if there was some sort of job analysis about what's required to serve in political office, but just thinking over how much tension there has been over the last several years uh, and thinking ahead to future elections, wouldn't it be nice if there was some sort of screening process and nonpartisan just to get some objective data 
about, hey, how does this person score in the areas that are required to do well in such a position? Almost like a baseball card that you'd have the stats on the back about performance potentials. I think it's cool that you're thinking about selection outside of what you've been doing in the Air Force, and maybe you'll be the one to develop and implement something like that in the community where you live. Who knows? I want to bring it back to the topic of heroism, bringing it all together. I read somewhere, I think maybe, I hope I'm not misquoting, but I think maybe it was the book that I recently read, Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, where he talks about heroes as well. And he talks about how majority of heroes, when they are asked about their acts of heroism, don't think of them as acts of heroism. They simply do what they know best, what suits them best. Like in this case, with the school teacher, compassion is what she's used to, what she knows. And she did just another day at work and she doesn't think of herself probably as a hero. What do you think are the ingredients of professional grit? And again, I think of heroism as professional grit, things that we do every day with dedication, good attitude, even in the most challenging of situations. Many people are waiting, I think, for the right moment to be a hero or to do something special, to be assigned to a special billet, you know, to be deployed. And that's, I think, what people associate with heroism. But I don't think that that's necessary. It's easy to forget those moments to shine often already here. We have to show up and be the best versions of ourselves in the here and now. What are some additional strategies for us to keep focused on taking opportunity to do the right thing? Some things that I think support day-to-day heroism include just becoming as best a professional as you can. Part of that is understanding the situation that you're in and the other folks that are in it. What are the hazards? What are the opportunities of that situation? If you're assigned to be in a position of power and control, okay, what are the hazards of that situation? If you work in a hospital, a medical setting, and you're now facing patients with COVID, and how do you care for them? Just becoming the best professional, knowing the hazards of infectious disease and the potential spread, contracting that, having your best skills as possible to care for people in that situation. Part of that is having a sense of purpose, I think. In the medical world, I think a vast majority of us are very compassionate. That's why we get into medicine. Plenty of other folks are caring and compassionate as well, which is empowering which is energizing to do the right thing. Even in other professions where, hey, I'll do this for the people in my right and my left. It's very motivating and empowering to be compassionate, caring for others around us. I can think of so many examples as I'm listening to you, like the day that I had yesterday with patients, somebody who needed to be hospitalized. And I spoke with a facility, as a civilian facility, where This patient was hospitalized. We referred that individual for treatment of substance abuse disorder. And the worker who worked in that facility spent almost all day with that individual and countless hours, you know, not an hour, probably from 10 until almost 3 p.m., just kind of reassuring this individual who was very anxious about getting treatment and what it's going to mean for their career. And I was thinking to myself, this person who works in the civilian facility probably doesn't get paid enough to do all this work and to stay kind and compassionate and consistent and explain again and again the treatment engagements and the rules for staying in that facility and reassuring and, again, going back to your compassion. A true professional in my mind and small acts of heroism that may go unnoticed, but in my eyes, that is what is a hero. 
I think absolutely there are day-to-day heroes who are just doing their best to perform their professional skills to take care of others despite the hazards. And I think they're more likely to be able to thrive when they do face a crisis situation, such as the school principal faced, kind of being in the habit, as we spoke about earlier from the book, of doing the right thing, of taking care of others, of really just performing. They don't necessarily recognize, hey, that was a heroic act. It's not as if they're looking for those as a way to stand out. It's just what they do. It's been the habit of doing the best and caring for others. I think part of it is also a sense of duty to act. Those of us in the military have that sense, hey, I'm supposed to do things that support the mission, and also I'm supposed to take care of people and advance their skills and take care of their well-being. And that helps if they're on the lookout for opportunities to minimize hazards, to take care of other people, support them doing well. And then when situations, crises occur, they're much more likely to find it familiar. Oh, I'll just take care of people in this situation too. What do I do? Such as a school principal suddenly faced by that horrible situation. I like that. Very good. Can you think of anything else, maybe even specific skills or courses or kinds of things that people can do to enhance their professional resilience or their heroism day to day? I really think the class that you developed for BMT that was called Personal and Professional Balance is a wonderful example of training that can be offered to people as they face difficult situations. We developed a series of classes that provided training in mindfulness skills and other ways of maintaining personal and professional balance for MTIs as they approached several years of serving in that role. Trainings like that are just wonderful ways. One, gaining some skills, and then in BMT, it also helped us develop relationships with MTIs so that they felt comfortable coming to us when they had some stress situations. I like that you mentioned that we developed this training that was specific to the needs of that community, military training instructors community in BMT, because we understood, maybe not fully, but understood the challenges of their work environment. I think it's helpful at the time for us to really kind of be a part of that environment and be embedded in BMT. And then I know that it's subspecialty in itself to be embedded with a unit. Can we talk a little bit about the embedded units, mental health units, within different communities in the Air Force or in the military in general? I'm really excited about embedded mental health as it is expanding in the Air Force and other services. In years past, it's been the case that really only certain units, small number of units, had psychologists embedded into them, such as on carriers or in special operations or in SEER training. But now the Air Force is really expanding this under the rubric of integrated operational support. They're expanding how many units and types of units get embedded mental health assets. We served as an embedded team into BMT to provide support screening and then support to MTIs and leaders in that assignment. And it gives you very significant benefits. If you're present in a unit, you really learn what they do in detail. You learn what the challenges are, what hazards, what the difficulties. You also develop relationships with service members in that unit to build kind of their degree of comfort so that when they have some questions or stress, they're willing to come to you. You're much more accessible. It's easy to get to you versus having to get an appointment and fill out a bunch of forms and then have an appointment to talk about their concerns. But if you're easily accessible and they know you, much more likely to come to you early and just ask their question, get some suggestions, some support. 
much earlier prior to situations kind of evolving into a clinical issue. What do you think are some of the advantages of embedded mental health team? Being embedded gives you opportunities to identify challenges and hazards that others may not recognize and then help the unit to make changes. An example I'll give is my WINGS unit out at Beale Air Force Base, where a great psychologist and friend, Dr. Lenasco, consulted with leaders about shift durations. That unit and many of our units were placed on 12-hour shifts for years at a time, which caused significant human factors problems, fatigue, also just challenges to families. You're on a 12-hour shift, which is really a 14-hour shift. You have very little time for families, very little time to rest and recoup. And yet they hadn't veered from that. What our psychologist was able to do was to help them consider first, okay, is it possible to make a change? And then get them willing to try it. And they're very smart leaders who knew, yeah, we shouldn't be on 12 hours, but what else can we do? We need to support the warfighters downrange. But really, Dr. Lenasco and his team led them on kind of through the stages of change into considering and then preparing and then trying out a different arrangement in terms of shift duration and huge improvements in terms of quality of life and health, multiple areas of that. And then actually also mission performance, significant improvements in terms of quality of products over time. So having an embedded team, you can identify hazards and opportunities for improvement and then make some changes. I like the story about Dr. Lonesco. That's another example of somebody just being persistent and doing their work to the best of their abilities. Is there anything else that you feel like we need to talk about? Is there anything else that I'm not asking you today? Leadership sets the tone and leadership at all levels, the senior leaders, the officers, the senior NCOs, NCOs. Even the airmen, all leaders, set the tone for the conditions in a unit that make it more likely to perform well, to be heroic when called upon. But a lesson I would want to pass on for leaders is the story of Airman Snuffy. So it's a term used in the Air Force to describe an airman who maybe have poor discipline or poor motivation or something like that. But many folks may not know that there actually was an Airman Snuffy. Not a made up term, but in World War II, there was a not even a volunteer. Maynard Smith was his name, and he was brought to the recruiting station by the county sheriff. He was known as a kind of poor performer and sometimes outside the law and kind of a variety of misdeeds and whatnot, but was enlisted or put into the Army Air Corps at that time. His name Maynard Smith. Again, there was a cartoon character at that time named Snuffy Smith. And okay, so Airman Snuffy was in the Army Air Corps. He was a waste gunner in a B 17. And this person that no one would expect of doing well, hopefully he'll just get by and not harm anybody else that he's not supposed to. But actually on his first mission, Airman Snuffy served in a way that he earned the Congressional Medal of Honor. I think it's an important lesson to leaders just to be alert and don't write off folks that don't seem like they may do well. I think especially young people who are not yet quite so formed and set in how they're going to be as adults. They may face moments for truth of who they are and may shine in that. So leaders should give opportunities, pay attention to developing really all your airmen, all your subordinates, and some of them may surprise you in wonderful ways. Great story. Thanks for that. This was episode 37 of the Blue Grid podcast. Check out the book Natural Born Heroes by Christopher McDougall and tap into your inner heroism. And remember, heroism is a skill you can develop and hone. It's not a virtue. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. 
Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airman's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfidotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova.mil at mail.mil.